Hello, and welcome back to Crime Note, episode 14 today. Firstly, guys, happy spring. It's officially springtime. And hasn't the weather been amazing? Oh my gosh, it was so needed. And just in time for the garden visit stage in our roadmap. I know we finished our bar on Sunday and it's been so fucking nice to just have someone over in the garden, have a beer with them. And it won't be long until we can do that in a pub. But to be honest, I like our bar because if I get too drunk, I can just walk in my house and go straight to sleep like there's no awkward taxi rides home or anything like that it's great and I'm actually really impressed with us because it looks really amazing not to like gloat or anything guys but we did it just the two of us and I'm really sad that it's over now so I would fully recommend doing a DIY project with your significant other like on the weekends or something to do together because it genuinely bonded us and gave us something to look forward to and just do something with our time I do have to update you guys. We were in the car the other day and Monty turned to me and said, do you like my hair? And obviously I replied, "Uh, yes, you're the fittest human. (laughs) And he said, good, because he's officially going to grow a mullet. It's happening, guys. (laughs) What have I done? (laughs) Was I clouded by Bimini's beauty? Will it look as good on him? I don't know. But this is stage one, which I feel like will be the worst part, like the initial growth of a mullet. You know, when like boys grow their hair out from like a buzz cut and it it just goes through that like sticky out owl phase. (laughs) Send help, guys, send help. It's amazing, isn't it, how much the sun has put me in a better mood. Like you can hear it in my voice. And getting to see my mum for the first time in ages and my dad in the garden was a huge lift for the spirits, I can't lie. And today's case, guys, a few of you have requested it. It's really, really long (laughs) and it's very complex with multiple murders. So yeah, double warning there. I really love to find obscure cases that you guys don't know about, but literally like three or four people have requested this case. Um, So I know you want it. You all know about it already, I'm sure. Um, Just don't say I never treat you, huh? I intend no harm to the victims or families involved in this case. These episodes are compiled with evidence found online that is readily available to the public. This episode contains graphic content that some listeners may find disturbing, with talk of violence and murders. And now you have been officially warned, we can begin. This week we are covering the Moores murders. So buckle in guys, and get ready. As you probably already know, these murders took place between 1963 and 1965 in Manchester, England. And sometimes I like to leave it hanging on who the murderers might be, but in this case, if you're from England, you already know who they are. So this all starts with Ian Stewart and Myra Hindley. Myra was born on the 23rd of July in 1932 to a middle-class family. Her father served in the war until Myra was four years old. So she was raised in her early years by her mother and grandmother who lived down the road. I'm going to leave the names of the parents out purely because there are a lot of names in this case already and 
I don't want to like confuse you all with just a million names going on, so bear with me. Shortly after Myra's father returned, the couple welcomed their second baby girl to the world, who they named Maureen. However, Myra's father returned home from the war, just like most, suffering from severe PTSD, which he drowned every night with alcohol. He was a different man upon his return than when he left. He became violent and would often take this out on his wife, leaving the girls to watch an onslaught of violence as they grew up. Things ended up getting so bad the girls moved into their grandmother's house down the road. They would return home for dinner every night with their parents to maintain their relationship. The girls were a lot safer this way and it worked for a while. Of course, as you can probably guess, Myra's father's violence soon turned to his daughters as well as his wife. Myra's details of this violence often change, so we're not left knowing exactly what violence the girls were subject to, but I have no doubt that it did occur. And surprise, surprise, this began to shape Myra's personality. She was often in arguments and scraps at school. Her temper began to get shorter and shorter, and she would snap at any opportunity she was given. Myra did okay at school. Sometimes she behaved, sometimes she didn't. She wasn't bad at any subjects in particular, but wasn't really gifted in any either, so she just sort of fell into the average category. Myra was fairly popular at school and had a few friends. They all knew not to get on her bad side though, but she was quite sweet when she wanted to be. But there was one child in school that she was particularly close to. Oh my gosh, guys, can you hear that? I think there's a bee in here. <laughs> I am under a duvet in the studio and I can hear a fucking bee. What do I do if it flies under here? What do I do? <laughs> I am fucking petrified of being stung. I have never been stung and I'm 24 years old. So now I'm just really scared of being stung because I don't know what it feels like and what if I'm allergic and... <laughs> Welcome to my ridiculous adult life, guys. Anyway, enough of the fucking bee or wasp, whatever it is. Let's get back to the case. <laughs> so, there was one particular child that Myra was close to at school who would end up changing Myra's life. This boy was a few years younger and was often getting bullied in the playground. Myra would often stick up for him and use physical force against his bullies. Naturally, Myra was fond of this little boy and they became really close. She even states that he was her best friend. But when Myra was 14, she got news of an accident happening at the local lakeside. She knew this is exactly where her little friend was that day, so she ran all the way there and upon her arrival, she witnessed police pulling out the body of her best friend. And of course, this fucked her up like it broke her imagine being 14 years old and firstly witnessing that at all but let alone it being your best friend and someone who's younger than you that you really protected like of course that's completely going to scar you she goes on later in life to say that she completely blamed herself for this saying that if she'd been with him that day then he would still be alive which is quite heartbreaking really not to try and empathise with Myra, who is literally an awful, awful, evil woman, but you get my point nonetheless. 
Myra grew up to be a strong-minded woman who didn't want to fall into 1960s society norms of women being baby makers and settling down. So with that, at the age of 15, she left school and got a job at a local mechanic. She initially did really well here. She got on with everyone. And it was here where she began to grow into the infamous Myra Hindley that we know today. She started bleaching her hair from brunette to platinum blonde and experimenting with dark eye makeup. This naturally because men cannot keep their fucking pants on for one minute, got a lot of attention from the opposite sex. Around this time is where Myra met Ronnie Sinclair, a man she grew very fond of. The pair became a couple, and Ronnie even proposed to Myra. Initially, it looked like Myra was about to become a 1960s housewife, but as I said earlier, she didn't want to fall into the construct of getting married and having babies young. This really freaked her out. She was very fond of Ronnie and she cared for him, loved him even. But she just wasn't sure if she was ready to settle down just yet. At the age of 18, Myra left the mechanic shop and started working at Millwood's Merchandising, which, from what I could find, was a supplier of chemicals and dye stuff. Here is the part of the story where fate does its work. Whilst all this confusion is going on in Myra's life, it is now here where she meets Ian Braidley or Ian Stewart, as he was known before, and as I introduced him at the beginning of this episode. He also worked at Millwoods. Myra states in an interview of her later life that this meeting was completely love at first sight. She was instantly infatuated with him. However, this wasn't reciprocated, which only made her want him more. Ian Brady, on the other hand, was born on the 2nd of January 1938 in Glasgow. Ian was brought into a poor family with no father figure. He never knew his father, which to a young boy in the 1930s wasn't going to give him the best start, was it? He lived in a small room with his mother that she rented off of another family. She worked part-time as a waitress and struggled to make ends meet. Their situation got so desperate that when Ian was four months old, his mother put an ad in the local newspaper offering a pound a week to anyone who could look after her boy. Essentially, they would become his foster parents so long as she could see him whenever she liked. This is where the Sloan family saw the ad and reached out. The Sloan family were by no means wealthy already and they had four children of their own, but they wanted to help. So they took Ian in as their own and they did a very good job of looking after him, from what I could find. And it worked out for a while. Ian's mum did visit often, and they built a relationship. Ian even took the family name of Sloan, and was thereby known as Ian Sloan. So already he's gone from Ian Stewart to Ian Sloan. And as Ian grew older, he then felt different, and like he was the odd one out, which I think is totally natural. You're in a family with four other children, and you're the only other one... You're the only one that's adopted, like, you're going to feel different. You're going to feel singled out, aren't you? Like, that's pretty normal. And when he was 10 years old, his mother remarried and moved from Glasgow to Manchester. Reports say this ruined Ian. He really, really suffered from separation anxiety and abandonment issues from this. He started misbehaving and was clearly suffering from extreme abandonment issues, which is pretty common in children when a parent leaves. This behaviour quickly manifested into Ian's school life. He began having fights at school and bullying even his friends. 
he was very similar to Myra in that sense of he had friends, but a lot of them were scared to be on his bad side. I even found an article stating he began bringing a pocket knife to school at the age of 11. Ian began stealing throughout his childhood and even appeared twice before a juvenile court for housebreaking. By his early teens is where we first see signs of his idolation of aggression with sex. Ian has stated himself that he liked kissing girls so hard until their mouth bled and often explored his sexuality with a girlfriend. They would bring in multiple partners and try new things, which to us now, sure, that's maybe that's just like an adventurous teen couple. But if you think back to those days where it was far more common to save yourself a marriage, it must have been quite to be. This relationship didn't last though, as when his girlfriend went to a dance with another boy, Ian pulled out a flip knife on her, which landed him again in front of a court before his 17th birthday. He was granted probation on the condition that he went to go live with his biological mother in Manchester, which is exactly what he did. Here is where he took his new father-in-law's surname of Brady, which is how I will refer to him for the rest of this episode because that's the name he died with and that's what he's infamous with. He settled fairly quickly, back with his mum, and he soon found a job at a local fruit market. But his bad behaviour didn't stop here. He was soon caught stealing from this job where he was sentenced to two years in a borstal, which don't exist anymore essentially in the UK and the Commonwealth. But these were essentially juvenile detention centres, which were sometimes known as borstal schools. It was for like teaching misbehaving children how to behave in society. He was first sent to Latchmere House in London and then Hatfield Borstal in Yorkshire. However, he was soon moved to a tougher unit in Hull after being found drunk. <laughs> Jesus Christ. They're doing a great job in these Borstals. You can tell why they were abolished, can't you? Eventually, he was released in 1957, where he returned to Manchester and he got a job. Life settled for a while, and in 1959, he got his job in Millwood's merchandising, which catches us back up to where we left off with Myra. As I said earlier, Brady was not interested in Myra. A year went by of Myra dying to get Ian's attention. She began keeping a diary of all the interactions she'd had with him. Until eventually, at the Christmas party, Ian approaches Myra and asks for a dance. The pair continue this dance into drinks, which soon led to kissing. Myra must have been so fucking chuffed with this. <laughs> After a year of, like, being obsessed with him and just wanting his attention. So, I mean, props to her for, like, keeping up. Like, I know that if someone doesn't show me immediate attention, I'm out. I'm like, you don't deserve me. <laughs> It didn't take long for the pair to begin dating, which of course didn't take long for it to turn into a sexual relationship. Myra even lost her virginity to Ian. Myra was very impressionable and soon started adapting some of Ian's views and behaviours. It didn't take long for Myra to abandon her Christian faith. The pair would often spend hours at the moor where they would have deep, deep chats that began to get deeper and deeper over time. She was soon at his every beck and call and would do anything Ian would tell her to do. The pair became closer and closer and Ian began speaking of crimes 
in his past and even some ideas for the future. Myra was utterly obsessed with him, so she was the perfect person to be his accomplice. But please don't take that as that she was coerced into any of this. Myra wanted to do anything for Ian, even if that included murder. Like, she was happy to do it. She wanted to do it. Now, here, guys, is where we enter the inception territory of Crime Note. (laughs) The inspiration for Ian and Myra's first crime is inspired by a book they had come across. This book was about none other than the very first case that I covered here on Crime Note, about Richard Loeb and Nathan Leopold. Do you guys remember? If you haven't listened to it, please do, because it's a really, really fascinating case, but I will summarise here. So essentially, this pair wanted to commit the perfect crime. They believed they were above the law and everybody else, so they abducted and murdered a little boy and dumped him in a lake. But it was foiled by one of them leaving their glasses at the scene. Honestly, I just love a full circle moment, don't you guys? (laughs) When I was researching this and I found this connection, my mind was blown. I had no idea that these two cases were connected. Like, that's fucking crazy. And it also made me realise how much detail I retain from researching these cases. (laughs) Which is actually quite scary when you think about it. Anyway, this book allowed Ian to see where the pair went wrong and where they made mistakes, and Ian picked through and learnt from all of their failures. This is where Ian first proposed that Myra helped him commit the perfect crime. Very similarly, Ian wanted to abduct and murder a child. And surprise, surprise, Myra said yes. How romantic. (laughs) If I were Myra, I'd be like, right, so you don't believe in marriage, but this is okay. (laughs) Chog on, for God's sake. But of course, she wants him to be happy, and if this is what she has to do, then she doesn't mind doing it. So the pair began planning. They drove around in Myra's van and scouted for the perfect victim. Very similarly to Loeb and Leopold case, like, those two, uh, Richard and Nathan, they went around schools hunting for the perfect victim, and that's exactly what Myra and Ian did. They essentially were fucking playing out what they did. They just wanted to do it better. They hung around local schools in the area to see what their options were and what would make an easy target. There was only one place the pair had in mind to commit these perfect crimes, and that was the moors where they would often hang out after dates, drinking and talking. And on the 12th of July 1963, the pair set off. Myra in her van and Ian on his motorbike, following behind. The way this worked is that they would drive around the local town and when Ian saw a child that he liked or wanted to abduct and murder, which so fucking wrong, is so wrong, he would flash his lights to Myra to signal this child, like pull over. And that would signal Myra to pull over to the child and ask if they needed a lift. And I mean, what child is going to say no to a woman? Like what child is going to question a woman's intentions, you know? This is the night that 16-year-old Pauline Reed was walking into town to go dancing. She was wearing a pink dress and a blue coat and her new white dancing shoes. This night in question, Pauline was going out dancing by herself. As far as she knew, her friends weren't coming out. The pair had actually spotted an eight-year-old walking by herself. Ian flashed the lights, signalling this child to Myra, but Myra refused 
they decided an eight-year-old was too much of a risk. So they continued their search. And here is where they found Pauline walking alone. Myra actually knew Pauline. She was friends with Myra's little sister, Maureen. And because of this, Pauline happily agreed to a lift because she trusted her. Whilst driving, Myra said she had lost a glove on the moors and begged Pauline to help her look for it and promised that she would drop her off at the dance as soon as they found it. And of course, Pauline agreed. When they arrived at the moors, Ian was already there. Myra introduced them and said that he was here to help look as well. The next part of this story differs. Myra claims that Ian took Pauline off into the moors until they were completely out of sight. She states that they were gone for a while, so she went back to sit in the van where half an hour later they returned. She states that just by the look of Pauline's clothes, she could tell Ian had sexually assaulted her in some way or other. Ian, on the other hand, claims that Myra had been there the whole time. He stated that Myra not only watched, but took part in sexually assaulting Pauline. And it's really uncertain who did what in this particular abduction, but here is what we can find out from Pauline's body. Pauline's body had been violently sexually abused. Her throat had been cut twice, and I'm not talking a slit, I'm talking like a deep cut that nearly decapitated her. She led there dying and bleeding out whilst Ian used a shovel to dig her a shallow grave. The pair then buried her there, right on the moors. They put Ian's motorbike into the back of Myra's van and they drove off, leaving Pauline to rot in the ground. And Pauline's body is actually the last to be discovered, um, but we will get onto that later. After Pauline didn't return home that night, her mother and brother went out to the town searching for her. And who drove past them? None other than Myra and Ian. Myra and Ian burned every shred of clothing that they were wearing that night, every single piece of evidence that connected them. They felt a huge rush of power and importance after committing their perfect crime. And essentially, with this whole case, it's pretty obvious, but I don't think they were doing this because their sole intention was they enjoyed murdering. I mean, they obviously enjoyed it, (laughs) but I think the whole point was very similar to Richard and Nathan, their case, that they just genuinely believed that they were better than everyone else and that they were smarter than everyone else and that the laws didn't apply to them and they could get away with the perfect crime. And for some reason, people think that the perfect crime is abducting and killing a child. Like, I don't understand. Meanwhile, police began searching everywhere for Pauline. But in those days where there was not much else they could go off other than word of mouth that she was missing, all they had to do was physically search. There were absolutely no witnesses and no leads for the police to go off. So Pauline's disappearance continued as a mystery for a while. Some time goes by before the next victim. A lot happens in this time, including Myra cheating on Ian with a police officer. But he swiftly finds out and puts an end to it. I could go into detail about this, but honestly, guys, this is already a really long case and this doesn't contribute much to the case. Like, yeah, she had an affair for a little while with a police officer after killing Pauline Reed, but you know that it doesn't it doesn't equate to anything so on the 23rd of november 1963 the pair hired another van and headed to a local market to search for their next victim and this is where 12 year old john kilbride was chosen he was one of seven siblings and was a happy cheeky little boy he was working the market that day to get some pocket money 
he often went to help out and loved getting things for his family from the market. He was described as a really helpful, happy little boy. John Kilbride had just finished helping at the market where he went to go have a snack on a nearby bench. Myra then approaches him and offers him a lift home. John accepts and is very grateful. But of course, Myra asks John for help to find her glove in return. Just as she had done with Pauline. She drove John to the moors to search for this very, very important missing glove. Myra claims the same story as Pauline's murder. That Ian took John away until they were out of sight. And surprise, surprise, Ian says that Myra helped her with all of this. And surprise, surprise, Ian claims that Myra helped with everything claiming that Myra held him down whilst Ian sexually abused John and tortured him. Ian then strangled John to death, and once he was dead, they again buried him at the moors, packed up, and went home to burn the evidence. John's mother was worried when John didn't return home at his usual curfew, and it didn't take long for her to phone the police, where immediately the search was on. But once again, with no witnesses, this fell down to just sheer searching with no luck. Unfortunately, the police believed John Kilbride's father was responsible for this, and they completely hounded him with guilty verdicts. Which, wow, <laughs> I mean, it's fucking miserable, isn't it? Like, your son is missing, and now you're, like, you're completely distraught. You, you've lost a child, but somehow you're being blamed for it, and you're guilty, like... I know these things usually happen with people you know, but there, there was just no evidence to go off this. They just decided that he was responsible. As we often see, the gap between these murders began to shorten, and just after eight months after John Kilbride's murder, Ian and Myra decided to strike again. And on the 16th of June 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett faced the same fate. On this day, Keith was walking to his grandmother's house to visit for a sleepover, as he often did. Keith's mother was heavily pregnant at the time, so the grandmother often took the kids to give the mum a little bit of a break. His grandmother only lived two streets down, and he was always off on an adventure. Keith was one of the five siblings, and his mother said he always loved being outside and would often be out every day non-stop playing. This afternoon in particular, during the short walk to his grandmother's, Ian and Myra were driving by and decided Keith would be next. They asked if he was able to help them load some boxes into the van from the local off-licence in return for a lift. Firstly, <laughs> in what world are two grown adults asking a 12-year-old boy for help with heavy lifting? Like, what? I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand any of it and like the heavy lifting part is obviously not the worst part at all but I just I just just don't understand like oh god if I saw someone asking a child for help with heavy lifting I'd be like right firstly what the fuck are you doing like no (laughs) it didn't take long for Myra to play her usual story of the missing glove once again Keith was led to the moors where Myra pinned Keith down to the floor whilst Ian sexually abused Keith and strangled him to death This time, the couples took photos of Keith's cold, dead body before burying him and leaving him at the moors with the other victims. The following morning, Keith's grandma walked to the siblings' home, and it was here, when only passing over four of his siblings, that Keith's mother discovered that he never had made it to his grandmother's house the night before. Immediately, the police were phoned and they started searching. 
It didn't take the police long to connect this disappearance with John's. They were the same age had gone missing in exactly the same circumstances, just eight months apart. But despite connecting these cases, their suspicions were fronted to Keith's stepdad. The police were sure he was guilty and tore up the garden in search of Keith's body. This, understandably, tore the family apart, leaving them in torment with four children and two grieving parents. Shortly after Keith's disappearance, the stress of it all made Keith's mother go into labour early. And thankfully, she gave birth to a happy, healthy baby girl. But fucking hell. That woman deserves a medal, like... It must be so awful to bring a child into the world when you are grieving for a missing one and you already have four other to deal with. Like, being a mum is hard enough, being a a mum to a newborn is even harder and I just, I don't know how that woman survived that, I really don't. Just six months later, we are on to our next victim and it feels really grim to kind of rush through this but there, there's so much to this case that if I were to give you any more, like, I would have to do this in multiple episodes and I don't think my brain could handle that. Besides, I think the focus on cases like this should be on the serial killers, you know, and more on, like, what led them to this and why. So, you know, please don't think I'm being disrespectful to these uh, deceased victims. Like, of course, it's completely horrific what's happened to them. So I kind of want to get through that part as quickly as we can. Ian and Mara decided to start renting their own place and take their relationship to the next level. I mean, that's normal, right? Dating, then murder together, then move in together, right? <laughs> I mean, that's what me and Monty did, so fucking hell. That was a joke, don't think. <laughs> I've got any skeletons in the closet, I don't. <laughs> anyway, they moved into this property and their neighbour had a little girl who they befriended. The whole street was full of children as the school was nearby. Byra and Ian would often take all these children out for day trips to the moors and return them safely, untouched. Ooh, actual chills. On Christmas Eve, Ian and Myra were drinking whilst hatching their plan for their fourth victim. Ian was bored of the moors and wanted the next victim to be killed in their own home. Kindly, Myra had gifted Ian a tape recorder for Christmas, which I think you can guess what they would be using this for. The pair were getting bored with the same routine, and as we saw earlier, they had even began taking photos of their last victim's beaten, dead body. So, on Boxing Day in 1964, Ian is desperate to commit this next crime. Ian set up a tape recorder in the spare room of their house. This time, they headed to a fairground, armed with a bag of groceries, which they planned to use as like a prop to lure a child in. They found a little girl standing, admiring all the lights around her at the fair when they walked past and they dropped the shopping in hopes that the girl would help, which she did. She picked up as much as her little arms could take and walked it back to their van. Here is where they asked her if she wouldn't mind helping them with their groceries at home, seeing as their bag had broken and they offered to give her a lift in return. I I don't know why this one is the creepiest to me. Maybe because it's different to what we've seen so far and it stands out with the tape recorder that we'll talk about in a second, but you know, I think as well, she was being so sweet and helpful. She just wanted to help them and 
either way it's fucking grim but this one in particular out of all of them just stuck with me and like yeah it struck me as as horrific I mean they all are don't get me wrong but yeah you get what I mean <laughs> this little girl was 10 year old Leslie Ann Downey who lived with her mother and stepfather and three brothers this day in question Leslie's brothers had been with her at the fair they all went home after running out of money, but Leslie wanted to stay and watch the lights. So once they arrived back to the house, little Leslie helped with the shopping. And shortly before making her way upstairs, unbeknowingly walking into the room she would be killed in. The tape recorder is set up and recording everything. There is the audio to this horrific murder. It's no longer available online. There are like quotations from it and scripts and descriptions from it throughout documentaries on this case which is where I got most of the information for this episode and in particular where I got most of the information for this tape recording. Once in this room Myra and Ian start getting rough with Leslie pushing her about. They begin taking pictures of her. Leslie is screaming in fear where Myra shoves a handkerchief down Leslie's throat and attempt to smother the sound of her screams. In the recording you can hear Myra repeatedly saying we're just trying to take pictures you need to stop screaming now. Through this handkerchief, you can still hear little Leslie crying for her mum and wailing in fear and pain. Ian and Myra begin threatening Leslie, telling her to be quiet or they will slit her throat. The torture lasts 16 long, agonising minutes before Leslie is strangled to death with electrical cord. Myra washed Leslie's deceased body from any evidence in the bath and then wrapped the body in a rug before putting it in the back of her van. I'm sure you've all heard of this tape recording. It's pretty infamous within this case. Like, it was played during court proceedings, which harrowed all who heard it. 16 minutes is a long, long time to listen to a 10-year-old girl cry in agony and beg for the pain to be stopped. And Leslie's mum actually identifies this tape recording to be of her daughter as well, which can't imagine, must have been absolutely horrific. The morning after this murder, Myra and Ian took Leslie's body to the moors and buried it among the others. Police, meanwhile, were searching for Leslie with not much hope in finding her. Like, surely at this point, they would have thought, yeah, the others haven't come back. I don't have much hope that she will either. It must have been pretty fucking shit to get a call of another missing 10-year-old, like... Leslie's mother was completely distraught by the disappearance of her little girl and put out a reward for her safe return, but as we know, she never saw her daughter alive again. On the 6th of October 1965, Ian and Myra commit what would be their fifth and final murder. Ian and Myra stored a suitcase filled with evidence and souvenirs, shall we say, from these murders. They stored these in lockers at the local train station, which, when you think about it, is quite clever. If they'd have used, like, a stage name or a fake name for this, but you later find out that they fucking didn't. They put it in their name, so obviously they weren't as clever as they thought they were. <laughs> but, I mean, clearly they don't want all this stuff in their home because that's just a big flashing arrow, isn't it? So... When on the way to visit this suitcase, assumingly to put something in it, we're not sure, Ian bumped into 17-year-old Edward Evans. Edward was on his way home after watching a football game, where he started talking to Ian. 
Ian began chatting and flirting to Edward before leading him to their van. They drive Edward to their home and lead him in. Now here is where the story gets a little confusing. Throughout all of this, there have been different versions differing from Ian and Myra. However, in this final murder, there are three different sites. Yeah, you heard it. Three. This is because they kind of don't act alone in this one. So, early on I told you about Myra's little sister, Maureen. Maureen had settled down in the previous two years with a man named David Smith. They were happily married and gave birth to a baby girl who sadly died after a bad case of bronchitis at the age of six months old. Maureen and David and Ian and Myra were all fairly close. They often hung out and spent a lot of nights drinking at the moors. Ian and David in particular had gotten closer and closer throughout all of this, to the point that Ian even began talking to him more and more of crimes and his fascination of the law. Ian even mentioned to David that he had killed a person. David obviously refused to believe this, thinking it was all a big, sick, weird joke, which only angered Ian. Like, Ian wanted David to know how powerful and clever he was. So I think it just really pissed him off when David was like, yeah, sure, don't believe you, like. So on this night in question, when Myra and Ian had led Edward back to their house, Ian turned to Myra and asked her to go get David Smith and bring him here. I'm sure you've all worked out why Ian makes such a ridiculous request, but Myra, of course, obliges. She walks to her sister's house and chats to them for a short while before asking David to walk her home to make sure she gets back safely. Which, FYI, we still have to do in today's times. <clears throat> Let's not get into that now, shall we? And of course, there are three differing stories on how this night played out. Myra and Ian are adamant that David knew exactly what he was going on that night and that he wanted to take part. I mean, Myra also completely denies everything in this night saying that she just didn't know what was going on like fuck's sake but David protests like he had no idea what he was walking into and had he have known he obviously wouldn't have walked in. Ian claims that David freely walked into his home and witnessed Ian murder Edward with pleasure. He claims David was happy to help clean up and they sat and had a drink after devising a plan for the body. David claims that as soon as they reached the house he heard obvious noises of struggles coming from the living room. He claims he followed the sound to the living room where, much to his shock, he found Ian straddling Edward with an axe in his hand. Edward was screaming in agony with multiple open axe wounds. He watched in shock as Ian strangled Edward to death. David states this pair immediately start cleaning up before wrapping Edward's body up. David does admit to helping with the cleaning, stating that he was petrified for his own fate if he were to refuse to help or run away, which is believable, I guess. Like, I'm sure in the moment you would just be like, uh, okay, I'll do whatever you want me to do because I'm scared that you're going to kill me. And to be fair, David's actions after this kind of confirm that, but I don't know, it's, it's up to you guys what you decide on that. David said that once they were done, he completely ran home as fast as he could to Maureen, in shock and vomiting, like, of the thought of what he had just witnessed. He was completely distraught and was really, really suffering from this. Maureen comforts him and agrees to phone the police in the morning. Myra, on the other hand, claims that she was simply in the kitchen the whole time, just listening next door. 
I, yeah, I mean, I can't say I believe that one, guys. I won't lie to you. <laughs> so the following morning, David Smith and Maureen phoned the police using a local call phone. David explains what he had seen the night prior and that he believes Ian was responsible for the recent missing children, fearing they had faced a similar fate. Immediately, police flood to Myra and Ian's house and raise their suspicions. Ian, unsurprisingly, is pretty calm in this situation. He sits on the sofa and told them, A fight got out of hand last night. It's upstairs. Myra, you better unlock the door. It obviously being the deceased body of Edward Evans. The police walk into the upstairs bedroom where they find Edward's body in the fetal position. Ian immediately stuck to the story of an argument getting out of hand, but as we know, that's not the case, and the autopsy report states that Edward had 14 different wounds to his body, and his cause of death was strangulation. Like, <laughs> guys, guys, <laughs> an argument gone wrong would mean, a, like, it wouldn't mean a strangled body and a beaten dead body. It would mean a live person with an accidental injury. For fuck's sake, like, at least come up with a good excuse. <laughs> Obviously, Ian and Myra were taken straight to the police station whilst the forensic team got to work. It will be no surprise to you that there was a lot of incriminating evidence, including notepads filled with instructions on how to clean weapons and destroy evidence, sketches of the moors and names of missing victims. It also didn't take long for the police to discover the renting locker at the train station which held two suitcases full of evidence. In these suitcases were photographs of children, including victims buried at the moors. They also found the tape recording of the death of little Leslie Ann Downey. Ian was immediately charged with the murder of Edward Evans, whilst Myra was released whilst they collected the evidence for the remaining victims. Just five days after Ian's arrest, Myra was arrested for accessory to murder, which obviously, as we already know, was soon changed to murder. Meanwhile, a search party commenced on Saddleworth Moors for any evidence of fresh ground that had recently been dug, or any evidence of the missing children. This search took 10 days before the first body was found. Leslie was found first, and the decay had been slow. It was quite a recent death, so Leslie's mother was able to identify her. I mean, don't imagine it, can we not? Like, we can never imagine it, so let's not even try. <laughs> But fucking hell. Obviously, the evidence was pretty damning with the tape recording and photos of Leslie in their house. Ian protested his innocence in her death and said that he took the photos, but he didn't kill her. Whilst Myra stated that she had no idea. Just, oh, I, I can't. Like, clearly at this point, you've been caught. You weren't as smart as you thought you were. Just give up. Like, you were going to do yourself more favours if you just come clean or at least be like oh I was really scared for my safety Ian did all the killing like rather than just be like I don't know don't know where that came from you are literally caught on tape talking to her two days after Leslie's body was found John Kilbride was next the clothes that were found on the decaying body were identified by John's mother this same day that John's body was found Ian and Myra were charged with the murder of Leslie whilst police gathered all evidence connecting them to John Kilbride and it obviously didn't take them long. So soon enough, they had three murders going against them. Throughout this whole court process, Myra Hindley protested her innocence till the very end, like till the day she died. 
she absolutely refused to admit to it. And in April 1965, Ian and Myra were put to trial for the murders of Edward Evans, Leslie Ann Downey and John Kilbride. It took the jury two hours to find Ian guilty of murder on three counts. However, the jury only found Myra guilty on count of two. They somehow believed that with John Kilbride, she was just an accessory of murder, not actually a murderer. So, yeah, they were both sentenced to life in prison. David Smith, on the other hand, was actually acquitted of all prison time. He was granted immunity for essentially telling the truth and coming clean. I mean, I don't, I don't know where I stand with this one, guys. I don't know if that's okay. Like, he did help clean it up, but at the same time, would they have been caught that early or even at all if he hadn't have phoned the police? Like, I don't know. I feel like in that situation, I mean, you can never know how you're going to react in that situation. But if it's true that David didn't know what he was walking into, of course, you would, you would do whatever these people wanted you to do and then go straight away to the police and be like look I yes I helped clean up but I, I was scared for my safety like he didn't kill anyone so I yeah I, I think I think I believe it I'm not sure though but who the fuck knows anymore you guys let me know what you think because I yeah I genuinely usually have a pretty strong feeling or like decision or thoughts on this but this particular thing with David Smith I just have no idea where I stand Myra and Ian both had a rough time in prison. Is that is that the way to put it? I don't know. Is it rough? They deserved it, so I don't I don't know. <laughs> Obviously, people, especially in England uh, and America, they don't take too kindly to people who are inside for killing children. So they were beaten up by other inmates repeatedly, and Ian was even put in solitary confinement for the remainder of his prison sentence. Myra actually had a better time in jail, I would say, after she fell in love with a prison guard named Patricia. Let's leave that part there, pretty much, shall we? But this news found its way back to Ian, which obviously made him extremely angry. And through most of the court proceedings at this point, Ian had protected Myra by only making her an accessory. He never, like, point-blank placed her in into it and, like, into actually murdering until after he found out about her affair. But with this news of the, the affair, Ian decided to drag her down with him when he admitted that they were both responsible for the murders of Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett, which obviously the police and the public knew nothing about. They didn't know that these two murders had been committed by Ian and Myra, so that must have been a fucking breakthrough, mustn't it? Pauline's body was found on the moors, but Keith's was never found. Myra passed away in November 2002 from pneumonia, and Ian passed away in 2017 from a chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. 2017? That was only four years ago. Blows my mind. Blows my mind. There are several survivors from Ian and Myra that had they had tried to abduct and kill, but they somehow managed to get away like I could go into that but honestly this is already a really long complicated case and it's such a well-known case that you guys can easily watch any documentaries there are so many out there on this particular case and find out for yourselves I mean you can google it as well but I just 
I mean, it, for me, it doesn't feel great to go through the surviving victims' experiences because it must be really traumatic and, you know, it, I wouldn't like it if uh, I was a victim of that and someone was... I was, you know, I was alive and someone... I know that can sound hypocritical because it's what I, what I do, but they, these are deceased and this is a well-known case. Um, but yeah, I want to leave the surviving victims out of it for this episode in particular, guys. So yeah, I hope you agree with that. Um, you can go do some research for yourself if you want to find out more on that. But there we have it, guys. That was the very, very long case of The Moors Murders. You asked for it, I delivered. Okay, we all knew that was going to be a very heavy one, so I tried to keep it as simple as I could for you guys, because a lot of the things on this case are very long-winded, so I did my best to keep it compact for you. Um, And well done for making it this far. This week, I have been really missing all my friends over in Italy so much that I decided today we would do the five random laws from there. No particular reason, but I have to choose somewhere, and this week it's Italy, guys, so deal with it (laughs) number one in turin you can get fined for not walking your dog three times a day oh my god imagine being (laughs) being a dog there like you would either love it be like yes it's the best life ever or you'd be like human please just stop i can't take any more walking number two in Venice, if you're caught buying a fake knockoff designer bag, you can be fined up to 1,000 euros. I mean, I feel like the people selling it should be fined more. <laughs> Italy is like the fashion centre of the world, isn't it? So I don't doubt this at all, but I would have imagined Milan more than Venice. Like, Venice is full of overpriced things that people are trying to scam you with. Number three, wearing a skirt as a man could get you arrested. Okay, guys, I I couldn't find any actual laws stating this, but this one kept coming up when I was researching this, honestly. Which surprises me. I honestly thought Italy would have, like, be the most diverse place for fashion, but I guess they have nothing on Brighton, hey? <laughs> Number four. In Campania, it is banned to kiss in your car. Well, I mean... <laughs> can't really comment on that one, can I? <laughs> Number five, and finally, it is illegal to die in... (laughs) It's so ridiculous. In... Oh, God, I hope I'm saying this right. Lorenzo, if you're listening, I'm sorry. In Falciano del Masico? Masico. Falciano di Masico. You get my point. (laughs) This small town in Campania, again, doesn't have... um, like was running out of cemetery space in March 2012 so the mayor decided to solve the problem by outlawing death I mean if it works (laughs) I don't see how you can put a law on that people die when they die (laughs) and that was today's episode of crime night guys I hope you enjoyed it enjoy feels like the wrong word but yeah well done for making it this far you deserve a medal and a pat on the back. So please head over to Crime Note the Pod on Instagram and get in touch with me. Suggest more cases for me to cover and just come have a chat. You know, my DMs are open. You can support me by clicking the link in my bio if you are in a position to do so. 
Otherwise, please support me for free by sharing and following on Instagram. I really hope you guys have a great bank holiday weekend and get in some lovely garden visits. And hopefully the weather's picks up. I don't know. We'll see. But stay safe, guys. I'll see you next time. Bye. Don't be afraid. Come with me.